You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kibalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom, this is Standing in Two Worlds with Dr. Sam Juni in Yerushalayim, America. Uh, Sam, you surprised me uh, yesterday off pod when you told me about an event that you attended in Yerushalayim, America, I guess it was. Actually, a, a play that was being uh, produced, uh, Edward Albee's uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? And I sort of like, yes. yeah. I, it doesn't surprise me that Yerushalayim Theater uh, should be presenting something like this. Of course, it is a uh, uh, an award-winning play, and it, uh, I think it still packs a wallop 60 years later. Uh, but what surprised me was your interest in it is not because you're uh, such an avid theater goer and that you're so interested, but that this play was really important because the people involved and the people watching it uh, were gaining a therapeutic value from seeing this play and then discussing it afterwards. So let's start there just because, you know, I, I, I never saw you as like, even though you enjoy entertainment. I never saw you as being a theater buff or caring about these things. So I don't know that I'm a theater buff. I mean, we've been fan of live theater always, but uh, I actually come to it because I was into acting for many years as a uh, younger person. And um, I gave it up for more fertile um, areas, I guess, but I always maintained the, the interest in acting and also felt that acting was a um, an experience that really touches your own psyche rather than just being entertainment. And uh, what I'm referring to basically is, is just from my own, those years that I was involved, I found that it affected me, the roles that I played. I mean, some roles I could not play at all. And the roles that I could play actually ended up affecting me by... Um, first putting me through those particular emotions that the protagonists were in that I was presenting, and then actually um, awakening associated emotions, associated feelings and memories, and almost getting a chance to work some of those out during the course of my being involved with particular plays. But you, you didn't have to do that as a performer in front of an audience, did you? It's one thing to be part of a group that's very uh, hermetically sealed. It's these 10 people that were working on this. It's another thing to actually put on a show, like going out there and, and charging or doing in front of an audience of hundreds of people in a theater. Uh, that's not what you're talking about, is it? Okay, so I'm not quite sure what you're saying, but I can tell you that, yes, I was on stage a number of times, and there was a, an audience ranging from small to quite sizable in different venues. And um, what I'm talking about is that in learning the part and then actually acting the part, I was in a sense experiencing emotionally whatever it is that I was portraying on stage, and it was a way of working out those particular issues. Um, that's not why I did it. I did it because there was a thrill to be able to pull something like that off. But it, it ended up clarifying for me and actually working through issues that I had not worked out before, which concerned the particular um, player that I was depicting. Yeah, right. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, is that it's one thing that everybody here is 
trying to get themselves better. And this is a means through uh, an interesting way, uh, take the bull by the horns, but rather by investing yourself in that character, discovering some of those issues that are hurting you and being able to uh, distill them in that character that was written. But then there's also getting the lines perfect. There's making sure the production works. There's making sure that the guy next to you doesn't forget. I've been involved in, in, in professional plays of some fashion when I was a, when I was very small and when I was a, a, a young child in elementary school. And I know what, what that's like of, of, of the, the thrill, but also the, the anxiety that's involved in putting on the show and people are out there. Uh, it isn't just, I, I feel good among my little therapy session of being able to play that role. And now it's finished. You also had to make sure that you didn't flub your lines and didn't make a, a fool of yourself because there's people out there who might have at least invested their time to come see it. I, I'm not sure if that is so essential. Making a fool of myself has never been a, a major uh, fear of mine. I, I'm quite comfortable making a fool of myself because I'm basically, I'm full of myself anyway. So being a fool every now and then will not hurt me. Now, what I'm talking about is basically being put into a um, situation where you are acting a certain part. And then in the um, process of acting that, what happens is that it resonates with whatever kinds of issues you may have that correspond to what this protagonist is going through. And then, it, I mean, essentially, in terms of theoretical work, uh, the, most of, this is basically the, the, the theory here is theory of psychodrama, where therapists sometimes use drama, acting, their patients acting in drama as a way of getting them in touch with issues. And the notion is we put you th- through a certain drama where you act the part, and the assumption is that your ego will pounce upon those aspects that resonate with you in terms of unfinished business and then force your, you, so to speak, to face those issues and then work it out some way or other for better or for worse. Not necessarily for better always, some, because often we repress um, issues that we have for very good reason because we're not capable of handling it. So if we put you in a situation where you're forced to confront it, albeit in the form of acting someone else, that can be quite uh, problematic. So that's why in psychodrama, you have a therapist who manages that, who knows how to point you into those directions, picking up whatever it is you're doing that seems to be untoward, and also knows how to help you abort if the going gets too hot. So, I mean, that's the essential theory. And, And in terms of cognitive theory, I think that the logic here is, is Leon Fessinger's um, cognitive dissonance theory, which we've talked about in the past, which basically says that um, the ego has a need to make consistent your feelings and what you're doing or your beliefs on what you're doing. So if, you, if I can get you to believe something very strongly and that cannot be shaken, then supposedly what you do and your behaviors will fit in. But the flip side is that if I can make you act in a certain way, your ego will want to bring your emotions to fit with that acting, which means if I act angry, I'm on stage, but I'm acting angry, your ego, which is not very smart, I guess, so to speak, feels that, why am I acting angry? 
I must feel angry. And then you start feeling angry and you get in touch with that. So if you're in a situation like, and who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, where some basic existential questions come up, questions about identity, and you're mouthing that in quite an emphatic way, you can expect that those feelings within you, if they are unresolved, will come to the fore and they'll become an issue. So I mean, those of us, I, in fact, some of we had a quite a lively session afterwards with some of the crew. And it turns out that the set director is actually a rabbi and a clinical psychologist. And he had his own particular angle in presenting it. And the director is someone who is usually a director of um, a whole company called Theater and Theology that are concerned. I mean, this was atypical. This was not a theological play and such. But often they put on precisely those productions which tug at the consciousness of I would say modern Orthodox Jews who also live in the current world and how do they interact with it, especially how does their psyche make consistent their behaviors and their beliefs. So so this exercise that this troupe was involved in wasn't so much for their therapeutic benefit. Do you think it was more for the audience who might come and view it? Of course, of course, of course. I mean, they're professionals. They act. That's what they do. But the, sure, the idea is the reason why the uh, some of the audience comes, other than just entertainment, is to get to explore, maybe vicariously, maybe more than that, the issues they may have, which correspond to what's being portrayed in a particular play. Okay, well, let me let me split this for a minute. The first thing, my reaction is, of course, is that uh, being someone who knows I think perhaps too much about what I guess is called, you know, this popular culture. I, I do know about Stanislavski, Luther, and Stella Adler, uh, the ones who really created uh, at the end of the 1940s and the beginning of the 1950s what's known as the method acting. And these workshops were attended by many of Hollywood stars and starlets because they knew that people like Marlon Brando, people like James Dean, uh, Warren Beatty later, and others, uh, Rod Steiger, these were method actors. These were people that uh, Dustin Hoffman, of course, uh, in a way made fun of it in, in, in the great film Tootsie. But the idea was, is that you are able to take trauma or an issue from your life, and that's what you invest into that character that these actors, unlike, let's say, uh, what was considered, you know, let's say the very stilted type of acting that, let's say you see in Gone with the Wind, which is uh, a film that for years was considered the the apex of a, a, of a great film, has in years since then been sort of like looked at and ridiculed for, well, look at the way those people are talking. Right, I basically, in Gone with the Wind, for example, it's the story that's the main vehicle for what's going on, whereas in any kind of method acting, it's the actor's guts that drive the train. And that's why, for instance, I've seen Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf before. I would go to other versions of it to see how does this particular producer put their perspective. And that's why I we went to this more for the producer, because we know her from theater and, and theology rather than I've never seen anything she put on that was not related to theological issues. And I was saying, let's see how they deal with this. And I was not surprised to find that the the, the set the set producer was a an Orthodox rabbi. It didn't throw me. Well, well, I guess what I'm trying to say is it's not. Uh, there's one thing is it's already become like passe 
that good acting is only acting where you use your own trauma or you draw on experiences from your life to bring your character to verite. That when someone sees that, yes, the, that that character is angry. But you're what you do is you draw on something in your own life when you were angry. I remember my coaching at some place. They would say, Sam, who are you really jealous of? Okay, now talk about that again. And now let's try to project that onto this particular person. So that's where you get what's probably considered for the last, you know, 70 years, a real performance. I I get that. But there's also the other angle, which is what I was uh, intimating and we were talking about before, which was the people who are coming to the theater who aren't getting up there on stage and yet are, in a way, by viewing the theater production or the film, uh, a cathartic experience rises within them. And that is that, oh, that actor was able to put in a way in words or the director or cinematographer with the, the, the music and the imagery is somehow now therapy for me. I've now been able to have this cry that I wasn't able to have. I mean, you're watching some sort of space drama uh, that has nothing to do with your mundane little life. And yet what's being said up there, it, it somehow brings you to tears. It brings you to somehow relate it. And maybe it isn't just somehow. It's obvious how it relates. Well, look, this is the theory of any kind of vicarious appreciation of literature. The theory behind it is that you can uh, identify and translate it into your own particular context. And that's why, I mean, you being a voyeur with honoring the personal relationships does not bring any titillating results. It only works if you can relate to it as a person. And many people have pointed to why Flaubert's Madame Bovary is considered such a classic of modern literature. It pushes the right buttons, you know, it pushes the buttons that we all have. Right, but, but what was incredible was that it was gobbled up not only by women who suddenly had a lot of free time and could relate to her dalliances, but men as well, because the character was drawn so well and her issues and what was going on with her is can now be what others who are struggling with different circumstances, but yet whether it's boredom, whether it's a depressed sense of self, whether it's a frustration with communications that they're having with the people around them, that character could stand for them. And, and yes, you're correct. Any person reading uh, a, a book or, or a graphic novel or anything uh, could somehow relate. But I think it's when, when you actually put another human being in front of you, it, it really shatters a lot of I guess your defenses, and especially if that person is able to do it uh, convincingly with a a real emotion and feeling, it can really touch you to the point that that it's your life there without you realizing. I once took a friend of mine who was raised in quite a Hasidish upbringing. Uh, He moved away from that, uh, and I sort of was, you know, the the demon who introduced him to what I considered some of the great films of the 1950s and beyond. 
And one film I took him to was Rebel Without a Cause, Nicholas Ray's very impressive film about young people in the 1950s. And specifically, there's a part of that film where James Dean, uh, and he only made three films, James Dean. But in this film, he is a teenage boy who has moved to a new community, and he's somewhat inarticulate, and his feelings are, are, are he isn't able to say what he means, but he has a, two, his parents. One of them is a very henpecked person, his father. It was played by Jim Backus, who was well-known as for his comedy and as Mr. Magoo and as Thurston Howell in, in Gilligan's Island. But in this production, Backus does a piece of drama uh, where he is a very well-meaning father whose wife is controlling everything that's happening in the situation. I forgot who plays the wife, but I turned to my friend, and my friend's, there were tears streaming down his eyes because he had constantly, and not realizing how intense the hurt had been inside of him about how his mother had been controlling his father, how he had seen his father, a good person, being stymied and stifled, uh, how much he loved his father, and yet was so frustrated. He was shaking, literally shaking over the fact of of what he had seen. He's expecting just a, a fun time somewhere. And then when he sat in that dark theater and when he saw portrayed there, his internal pain and a, a tableau of the family that he had been frustrated with, it caused him to break down. And I, I, I'm just really giving you just an example that probably occurs consistently. So, but of, of people who, who get that experience, yes. Well, I just want to give you like a little of a different facet. What happens often to people when they are captivated, emotionally captivated by a particular play is that um, the particular actor becomes an icon in their own emotional portfolio representing that kind of facet or that kind of attitude or that kind of um, relationship. And, and they, they walk around with them instead of saying, I am now feeling this and this and that. I am now Richard Burton. You know, th- that's, that's who it is for you. I, I told you we had a, um, a, a post hoc uh, session with the crew and uh, some of the actors. And I remember personally being very disappointed. One of the actors brought along his father and wife to see the the um the post-hoc analysis and i said that's not fair this guy can no longer serve as a stand-in when i see his father there you know with the yarmulke sitting there and his wife shepping nachos i said no 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 you have to be this particular i mean this guy was um was george okay he was the, the main male protagonist in virginia wolf and i say just you've just ruined it you know, you can no longer be that 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 semel for me, that icon for me. That just basically says that you walk away with that, with almost another um Benny in your arsenal of who you can do. So it almost allows you when you want to get into a certain matter to say, okay, I'm not stepping into these guy this guy's shoes, who is now part of my shall we say alter ego personality. Mm-hmm. So I just found that anecdotally interesting for myself, saying, oh, geez, I wish you wouldn't have taken them along. That destroys his 
artifice or the the quality of his artifice of playing that role. Let's just sure. Uh, it's like finding out that your 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 main Rosh Hashiva he went to the bathroom. Come on, that's not supposed to be part of his thing. I want to look forward towards him in terms of a different light. Yeah, you know, I started today mentioning who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, which I think I saw when I was probably much too young to appreciate it. One of the major networks uh, was able to incredibly, I think, with a warning beforehand about the adult intense themes, show this film, which I think Elizabeth Taylor playing Martha won uh, probably deservedly an Academy Award, uh, you know, together with her husband at the time, Richard Burton. Uh, and I think because of that, you know, Mike Nichols, uh, you know, the Jewish uh, really easily of, of of comedy and directing and thinking about these issues. He had directed this film. I would, I would just add the fact that they were married played a lot in terms of people being able to project their own issues on them. Because here's Taka, a real couple, and it's real life, and I'm watching it. Not, not only a real couple, but if you remember the, the late 1960s, they were the couple that everybody knew about. They were, uh, you know, much more. Then let's say, you know, Prince Charles and Princess Diana or anybody else today. Or Jacqueline Kennedy and, and her hush of a husband, sure. Yes, yes. Well, again, which didn't last that long. Here you had, you know, these these uh, larger than life figures, especially Elizabeth Taylor, who was getting larger uh, than too much of her life should should have realized. But everybody knew about Liz and Dick and everybody realized that they were a couple. And here they were playing this couple and playing a couple who are uh, entrenched in a world you know very well, uh, a, a small college uh, where uh, the, the, her husband, George, teaches. Martha is somehow the daughter, one of the founders or one of the big wigs there. And they've invited a new couple uh, that I guess uh, the husband is now uh, is becoming a teacher in this place. And they're inviting seemingly over for a social evening. But really, George and Martha are planning what we would call something quite uh, harrowing, devious. Uh, they're going to really bring this couple in, not just serve them pedophores and uh, a little bit of a entree and send them away after supper. They are going to bring them into hell. They're going to create them in their own image. Yes. So, uh, and I remember, you know, the the characters, uh, the actors who played in the, in the film, in Mike Nichols' film, uh, George Siegel, a young uh, you know, Jewish actor at that time. He's now, I think he's still doing films. And Sandy Dennis, who I had seen in so many films, and A Patch of Blue, where she plays a, a young blind girl, or Up the Down Staircase, where she plays an innocent teacher who has to learn what it's like to manage a big city school. The point of Sandy Dennis was, in this film, she's an innocent who, by the end of the three hours of this movie, or of this film, they have been changed through this relationship in such a harrowing way. And it, it was an incredible hit that won a number of awards. As I said, it still rings a lot of bells. And, and you you saw this film and you've seen this production. Here it was happening in Yerushalayim, the way I, I began. The conversation that happened afterwards, did you see that the actors who had been involved in it were talking about how much they had gone through and how much it meant for them. Yes, yeah, some, and I have to say, 
I was extremely disappointed in George, who basically is obviously not a method actor and it had nothing to do with him. And I said, Oyve, just as I was, I know some of my friends, I didn't notice some of my friends were disappointed when just after the play, they saw the crew walking out, putting on their yarmulkes. And they say, Oyve, no, 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 this, we can't do this. These guys can't be mad. But sure, no, some of the people, not so much that they were affected, but that they had to put themselves into those shoes. And it was a trying experience for some of them because you have to act in a way that definitely is not consistent with their, um, uh, shall we say, uh, daily attitudes towards anything, but to be able to put yourself, and, and in a sense, and uh, I don't know if you want to get evil scheming, uh, you know, having false relationships, having, uh, you know, a, a real dissonance with who you really are. Sure, sure, some did. And again, for some, those that didn't, I just, in my mind, I could not keep them anymore as stand-ins in my own psyche for these kinds of issues. I have to find some other image there. Uh, I mean, when, when you think about Edward Albee, who was sort of this young revelation, you know, with the zoo story and many of other of his plays of the 1960s. I mean, you probably love this material as a psychologist, this material of, I mean, it's so rich in layers of trying to penetrate what people are really about and what they do and how they manipulate. So you must have loved the material. Do you think that the cast and the director and everybody really hopped the, I guess, the teeth kite, as we would say in, in yeshiva language, of what this play is about? Yes, I would say the, di- the director definitely knew this inside out. She's phenomenal. There's no question she knew it. The actors, I think they knew it. But again, as I said, some managed to go through this unscathed and untouched on a personal level. They were just doing their job, driving the bus, five o'clock, they're out. And of course, you know, the rehearsals, obviously, they had to do that. But yeah, so, uh, okay, it was Which I think really, you know, this is really the opposite or, or maybe the balancing beam of the method acting. Because even though uh, Luther Adler and Stella and Stanislavski and, and all those professors of method acting would encourage their students to bring that issues to the fore. They didn't want them to be so overwhelmed that they couldn't walk out of the stage door. They wanted them to be able to do another play afterwards. They didn't want them stuck in a certain row. That's right. That's right. And they didn't want it to destroy them. They wanted to, it's almost like tending uh, the flames of even of a nuclear reactor and teasing it out just strong enough to be able to do that production and then put the genie back in the bottle. That's right. That's right. That's right. Sure. Sure. I mean, look, because basically they're not all these, these uh, playwrights, they're not psychologists. They just realize that there are tools here to make it more real, but not for real to make it seem more real. You act as if like a, like uh, like I'm only spanking you because I love you so much. I'm not really angry at you, right? I mean, that's that's we know that's not true. But a parent would like to believe. No, no, no. I'm just pretending, and then nah, I'm nothing at all. I'm fine. And then of course that's belied with the with the ideas that Kohanim are basically you know evil people and uh, because they they're involved in the services in the temple. So or yeah, aggressive, yeah. not evil, but they have a certain violent, aggressive aspect about themselves that they right. can channel into right. the slaughtering of sure. animals. Sure, sure. And, and yes, I, I see the parallel. Uh, but again, 
you know, when when you know the, the it, it's so fascinating uh, that the material that was chosen, uh, which you know even in the late 1960s was considered shocking, it is somewhat of a the type of the subject matter probably needed to be sanitized somewhat for Orthodox Jews to sure. be involved. And uh, I, I know you mentioned to me off pod that there was some tinkering that had to go on in order yes. for it to be uh, even acceptable to get the PG rating for... No, no, to, in order to get some of the professional Orthodox acting crew on that had to be tinkered with and that doesn't quite wasn't quite tinkered with enough. I can tell you from our group, um, we had some walkouts. We had some, and our group are, are not basically cloistered people, and yet they, I guess they knew the content, but they just wasn't, weren't, they assumed, I guess it would be more, um, I would say sanitized, I would say more tempered. And it wasn't tempered enough, and I, I know the player, the, the director really spoke about her own um, conflicts, how much should, can she compromise, and she felt in terms of the integrity of the narrative she couldn't compromise on certain issues, so it's uh, sure it was, it was lively that way. But you would say, and I want to talk about two other things before we, we close today. But you would say that for modern Orthodox persons who are looking for something more than just I want to watch Stissel or you know let's go out and, and hear a, a concert, something that is thought provoking and interesting. Uh, you would encourage them uh, to search these type of options out, especially as we all know, it, it doesn't stop when the curtain falls. Oh, it, ne- it never stops. Yeah, I would urge them. I mean, I would urge many people to get involved with this just as they are involved with some real thought-provoking Hashkafa lectures, because this is like Hashkafa of the soul. And it gets through. It gets through where you might just want to yawn at a lecture. You can't yawn at this. Nobody yawns at a play like this. And somehow you can get the backstage ticket uh, to be able to discuss it afterwards with the people that are involved. So I assume that's something that, you know, you need to make an advance. You have to do that in advance. I have to tell you, one of the um, first dates I had with my wife, I was very excited because um, there, you know, as you know, I know a little bit about Jewish history, and one of the most important pieces of theater that was considered heralding the beginning of the Haskalah period or the period where Jews were being more accepted was a piece that was written by Gotthold Afram Lessing, a a, a non-Jewish German playwright who was a friend of Moses Mendelssohn, of Moshe Mendelssohn, and he wrote a play, Nathan the Wise. And in that play, the the, the, the character, it's, it's a period piece set hundreds of years in the past, but it's really about the wisdom, unlike a Shylock character, the Nathan is this very wise Jew who's able to use uh, his ancient background to the relates to the period and to distill wisdom and understanding. And many people saw this play as, well, Jews are not the devil. Jews aren't parasitic. There's something you can get from them. Um, they actually can help. And that's part of what Lessing was trying to do. The play was a tremendous hit. And, and many people saw it 
as the change, uh, the the event that changed the mentality of so much of the German populace in, in a positive way uh, towards how Jews could be contributors and maybe even relate to how they could change and what we can do to make them more like Nathan. Okay, so the play to me was very important. And I was so impressed that it was being produced. And I remember after the play was over, there was a 35-minute discussion that happened where everyone in the audience was encouraged to talk, to explain, because most of the people who were there were, were Jews. Most of the people who were there were, were interested people like myself. And I was able to uh, supply some information about the play that many people didn't really know and about Lessing and his relationship. And that was so wonderful to be able afterwards, not just, you know, walk out of the theater and throw your popcorn into the trash bin, but to actually be part of it, which is something you don't get, obviously, by, you know, going to a film whether you're streaming it or sitting in the theater. And also, I, think, I would say my prescription for attending plays is Dafka to attend off-off-Broadway. And if you can get a, a third off in there, it's better yet because it's particularly those venues that you have a good chance of being able actually to sit down with the actors or at least buttonhole them on their way up because in five minutes they'll be going out for their ride and you can grab them. So, I mean, I, I rarely went, besides the fact that I couldn't afford Broadway uh, in my formative days, we rarely went to um, to uh, to uh, Broadway. We went off, off, but for that particular reason. Sometimes the, the tickets were pricey, but it didn't matter. I had to, you know, that was where I had a good chance to do right. it. Right, schmoozing and talking afterwards. Uh, so the, the two other things. Uh, the one thing is you talked about your history. Now, obviously, you are a very respected psychotherapist, psychologist, uh, someone that is uh, well-known throughout the academic world. But you say that um, you acting was something that you a second love, something that you really enjoyed. Well, I shouldn't say it's a second love. I, I was involved with acting before I, I even wanted to get into psychology. I mean, I always was searching for the key for me to understand myself, and acting was definitely a a, a, a method that was there. I, I later found that the, I have much more effective ways of understanding myself than trying to act and seeing what resonates. But sure, that's where it came from. So it's not, it's not as well in terms of a love, in terms of being a ham and being on stage, I don't get to do much of that in my diagnostic practice. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I would say now it's a second love, but I can't do it because I don't have the time to invest in rehearsals. And by now, I think the brain cells are going to start petering out. So I can't vouch for the authenticity of um, the, the memorized dialogues. I haven't been doing much. I haven't done a something serious for um, close to 10 years now. And I, I, I'm, not, I'm not eager. I mean, there are all kinds of opportunities here in Yerushalayim to be involved. I'm not doing it because I don't have the time. But, but when I when I imagine you, and of course I met you when we were both quite younger. Um, but when I imagine you, you you actually putting the time and effort to be part of a production, and I know that uh, uh, as podcasters together, I think maybe we are channeling some of your desire to be out there and acting. I think maybe that's the reason why you continue to do this despite your busy schedule. But can you talk a little bit about? Some of the uh, you mentioned something to me about how there was a uh, a particular 
I, I guess uh, eureka moment that occurred for you once when you were late. Do you remember what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, sure, I can mention that. I'm basically, I was in Buffalo at the time, and I used to go pretty often to Toronto because Buffalo is a fairly godforsaken city. And I remember once having a, a group therapy session that I was a patient in, <laughs> not the leader. And um, I was coming in from the border and I got hassled by the border guards on the way back from Toronto. And they took apart my shoes and took apart my car. And it took a while and I came late. And, I, and eventually they started hassling me by documents. Luckily, I had a passport and I was able to show it to them. They finally let me in back to the United States. And I came late to the session. And I, you know, said, hey, Sam, what's with you? And I said, I'm sorry. I was stopped at the border. He said, okay, great. And this was, this, the, the mode of this uh, group was, was psychodrama. So put me into the hot seat and said, okay, tell your story. And I start telling the story. And I said, oh, this, you know, was a stupid passport you wanted to see. And he was hassling. And, he, and they, the, um, the, the leader, the therapist picked up that there was something about the passport and said, okay, so put the passport in the chair and start speaking to the passport. And then the pass become the passport and talk back to Sam. And it went back and forth. And at some point it got ratcheted up. And I was yelling at this passport, really like making like garbage, saying, Who are you? Look at you, some stinky piece of paper and my whole life. And you have these guys and they want to arrest me and they're trying to frame me for drugs in the car. And you stupid little paper. And he stopped and he said, Who do you talk to like that? You know, and my response was, My brother. And that was it. And then he dropped the passport. He dropped the whole story about the, the border guards. And he said, okay, so talk to your brother and continue that same line of dialogue. So I mean, that's the methodology, basically, where they get you into an acting mode, acting meaning active. You are doing it rather than thinking about it. And then by doing it, you resonate off within your unconscious or repressed conscious. It's not really unconscious, repressed conscious. What it is that you wanted to re, to, to get out of your system over here. And that basically means that your frustration or whatever is just a holdover from other frustrations, meaning supposedly that if I had been able to resolve those issues I have from childhood, that border incident would not have been so upsetting to me. It's upsetting. I'm going to be late and miss some of it. But what am I getting so excited about? News? I lost $50 that I paid for the session. What are you, what are you so upset about? You're upset not about this. You're upset about the old stuff. And that's where I felt in general acting. That's what it does for you. You get involved in the situation. And if you use method acting, especially, you live the situation and then you get to experience whatever it is. And supposedly, if the therapist is somebody who's competent, he or she can then channel that to get you to be more in touch with those issues so they don't burn within your soul. So essentially, as you resolve them, you'll become a poorer actor <laughs> when it comes to that situation. You have to go out to other fields. So, so had you been able to somehow put to bed your issues with your brother, you probably would not have discovered that you were an effective actor because you probably you would have been just a. a oh no, I, I, I have many other issues that I was able to to pick up. Sure, sure, but look, no, I I think the truth is like if you think of Freud's concept of polymorphous perversity, we have issues all over the place. 
And just by shooting some of those ducks down, you don't really make a dent. So you have plenty of other issues to come to the fore. But essentially, the best actor is somebody who is highly neurotic, who has conflicts up the wazoo. So anything, any part that comes up, they can plug themselves right in. Yes, I have problems with feeling low about myself. I have problems of being haughty. I have problems of being jealous. I have problems of feeling aggrieved. You just go with it. And, you know, you're like a potpourri of problems that are ready to be vicariously injected into various roles. That's what makes a great actor from the method perspective. From the other perspective, what makes a great actor is somebody who can memorize his or her lines very well. That's not my strength. And that's why I would say that's why I appreciate like directors like Larry David in his comedies, because I understand what he does is that he hires real professionals and he tells them just a general theme. Okay, you're going to make a fool of yourself. You're going to take advantage of her. And then you're going to come in with something that totally knocks them off their feet because it shows there are other ideals here. That kind of stuff I can do well because it's a mission. But lines, leave me alone right. with the yes, lines. Yes, right. And, and, and of course, this really, uh, you know, we, we know that even, again, the, the area that I'm so familiar with in terms of films, you know, we have act, you know, we have directors and writers like Cassavetes uh, who had just a, a basic outline uh, for where the film was going to go. And he allowed the actors to improvise sure. uh, what the lines were. Uh, that I would uh, sign up for. But right, that's because, not, but, it's not yeah. There are very few masters who can really do that. Most most directors really rely so much on the structure, which, which makes them essentially boring people to work on, but the product comes out nice and uniform. Right. Yeah, and again, I think this is always, you, you can tell, uh, films that sound like they are uh, improvised and you can find out later that even those improvis- improvisations although they came out in some of the script readings eventually when they would put the film there was an insistence to get it specifically oh. that way and we had somebody in our group who was um mrs Maisel, and i think she said for 11 minutes it was 13 hours of rehearsal for 11 minutes of what went on that's pretty pretty great no it's not surprising i mean as what uh, what, i I was i was saying wow you know and maisel seems to be so quick and almost improvised she said let's talk about this for a second you're talking about the amazon prime uh series called the the marvelous miss maisel that's right right so the marvelous miss maisel which is a fictionalized version of what life was like in the late 50s and early 1960s uh about a stand-up Comedian. Yiddish, Yiddish America. Yes. And in America, that, yeah, that was especially in America where in New York, where it almost seemed like uh, the Jews uh, had a, a larger than life domination of, of what was going on in culture and other things. And uh, the, the, yes, you can you know that, again, I, I can't recommend uh, that series that much because I find no no cinematically I, I wouldn't recommend it but still you have to watch it if it's Jewish and you don't watch it you're a traitor you have to you have to listen to like lousy Jewish songs and you have to read ridiculous articles in the Times pertaining to Jews because otherwise you you're a heathen you're not yes, one of us the uh, but yes we know in film it, it might take days and days to get a take you know Chaplin. Uh, in one of the most important scenes in modern times, supposedly took 
I think about five months to be able to get 45 seconds of what he wanted. And again, that was in a time that, that they were able to, yes, yes. So Chaplin was, you know, like, like many of these auteurs, uh, was almost just don't, just don't tell me that the three stooges didn't knock it off in a couple of minutes. Just don't tell me that. <laughs> um, I, I, I want to end with a little bit of a plug for my brother-in-law and his wife who are doing something a little bit different, which is they are encouraging improv, which is not unlike what you are talking about, which is Edward Albee's carefully constructed words, or even uh, the basic framework that sometimes you didn't necessarily adhere to, which is just getting people up there from the audience and asking them to improvise a scene. Uh, to get them to pretend that they are in a laundromat uh, and and folding clothes and somebody drops a quarter and it might be someone you're attracted to and maybe start going that way. And and having people using situations that are mundane but can sometimes, again, strike a chord, bringing people up from the audience and aren't professional actors and sort of like, allowing them to be part of an improv scene that somehow, uh, as my sister-in-law uh, points out, has been quite therapeutic for people, uh, which is a little bit different than what, what we've been talking about, mm-hmm. which is watching and emoting, actually getting up there without really that bark of professionalism, but somehow finding and being able to discover that by being in a, a what's basically a safe space, and I think even your therapy session was safe because you knew that it wasn't like the border guards are going to arrest you. Uh, it was it was safe enough for you to discover something. We all need, in a way, some sort of filter that allows us to deal with these things. And and it, yes, I'm. It looks like I'm just going out for entertainment. <laughs> but now that they that I've been brought up on stage, and now that I'm part of this uh, other actors who are doing the shtick, I know m- I'm not going to uh, outshine them, but maybe I can also, through what's being teased out of me, I can also perhaps deal with issues. She even talks about my sister-in-law. It, it can even help just in terms of social phobias that sometimes people have in terms of shyness, in terms of people being uncomfortable meeting new people so really i think that it runs a complete gamut i would just add this this dovetails very nicely moreno himself who founded psychodrama used to run weekly sessions in manhattan for decades where precisely the audience was invited to participate sometimes in other people's issues, but that get, it's not wasn't totally improv, but it was of that genre. It also served as a disinhibitor and for other things. So that sounds pretty interesting, what you're raising. Yes, yes. It's, it's out up there in Vancouver, uh, Theater Improv. Uh, you can check that out. And, and I'm sure it's being done and replicated in, in many places. And it really just speaks to the fact that the world that we grew up in it was much more boxy in terms of this is what you do. This is your school. This is your entertainment. This is your married life. But things were compartmentalized. I, I think part of what what we're all talking about this discussion is how entertainment, uh, enjoyment, a night out, 
everything is bleeding together towards, as you say, a, a more healthy persona, a person better armed uh, to deal with the vicissitudes and difficulties of life and getting, as you said, uh, more in touch with themselves and maybe enjoying the process. Look, as I said, you know, we, we go to the films, uh, we see the actors, we cry, and we feel better afterwards. And we and I think that's really what this is about. Because, Sam, you'll be the first one to say that if you have this uh, trauma that you have not dealt with, that, that is sort of like uh, has invested it, it, as is creeping inside of you, if you don't deal with it, it's going to show itself and bring you down and, and really cause wreckage in your life as you move on in some some way or fashion. So these type of involvements, although people would say, oh, it's just a waste of time, it's a bit dozman, you would say, Sam, that, and I guess I'm, I don't want to put words in your mouth, that this might really be the key to having a more fulfilling, better life. Yeah, it sounds great. <laughs> sounds great. <laughs> All right. Well, you, you'll have to let us know about the, the, the next production for our uh, listeners out there in Aaron's Israel. What, what, what are they planning next? Do you know the... Uh... It's being held seek, a secret. Oh, I mean, there's the standard stuff. You know, Hello, Dolly is on this week. They have Hard Love coming up. There's stuff coming up. It's there, but the, some of the real prizes are being kept in secret. They like to have it come out with this black. You know, it's hard for me to really uh, jive Hello, Dolly, and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. But I, I'm, I'd be fascinated to discover the inner psyche of Dolly Levy. Yeah, I'm not, sh- I'm not sure that the um, producers will actually uh, end up with that kind of angle. But okay, be some good songs. <laughs> All right. Take care, Shab. We'll catch you next time. Be well. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.